Haddow is Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland. Today, her subject is the wise men. First, some background information. The Magi were not Jews. They were Gentiles from another land. Why is that important? Well, Matthew is highlighting for us that Jesus didn't come just for the Jews, but also to offer a way back to God for the Gentiles too. Basically, for all people. Epiphany is a Greek word, uh, epiphanos, which means shining forth or manifestation. But these days, the term epiphany has come to mean realisation or sudden insight or revelation. And when you have an epiphany, it's usually often a catalyst to change in a person's life or actions. And I want you to hold that thought at the back of your mind. Chances are we're familiar with the story of three kings of Orient who are bearing gifts and traverse afar or field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. So I thought we would do a little quiz. Now, in this quiz, you don't actually have to answer out loud. Just think what your answer would be based on what you remember of the story. So the first question, how many kings were there? Answer, none, because they were magi, wise men. They're referred to as kings because their coming was linked to Old Testament readings, like Isaiah 60, which we read earlier. How many magi were there? Well, we actually don't know. We assume three, because there are three gifts. Did they visit Jesus in the stable? No, the Bible said it was a house. Did they visit Jesus when he was a baby? Well, we're not too sure about that one because the Bible actually says that he was a child. So how old was Jesus then when the Magi came? Well, again, we don't actually know. But Herod asked when they'd first seen the star and then he killed off all the boys under the age of two. Not a trick question. What were the gifts that the Magi gave? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. And what was the meaning behind the gifts? Well, the importance of the gifts is said to be the message that each one conveyed about Jesus. Gold is the gift for a king. Frankincense is the gift for a priest. It was burned at times of offerings. Jesus was the king of kings, but he was also the great high priest. And myrrh is a gift for one who is to suffer. It's used both for healing purposes and for embalming the dead. It's strange, isn't it, that as familiar as the story is to all of us, we can always see something new as we read it. Well, that's how it was for me a few weeks ago. I was reading this familiar story, and I was also reading an article on the subject, and it was suggested that perhaps there was something in verse 11 that perhaps deserved some more reflection. Matthew 2, verse 11 says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, 
and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. It was suggested that there is more meaning in those words, then they opened their treasures, than perhaps we realise. So what difference does it make if they presented their gifts after they worshipped him? Well, what if, having found the Christ child and bowed down and worshipped him, that it was then that they had an epiphany, a realisation, a sudden insight, a revelation. And because of that, they presented him with the things that were important to them, that were important to who they were, their treasures. That was In the Bleak Midwinter, sung by the choir of King's College, Cambridge, from their 2021 CD of Christmas Carols. We now return to Mary Haddo with her explanation of the presents brought to the baby Jesus by the wise men. So let's look at these men, these magi, and their treasures, and what presenting them to the Christ child might mean for them and for us. Tradition has it that the Magi were from Persia, once a mighty country where modern Iran and Iraq now are. And these Magi were said to be teachers and instructors of the Persian kings. They were soothsayers and interpreters of dreams. They were men of position and of wealth. And so naturally enough, they would have gold. In Persia, no sacrifice could be offered unless one of the Magi were present. They were therefore viewed as men of holiness and wisdom, sort of priests. So naturally enough, they would have frankincense with them should they wish to make a burnt offering. 
these magi were also men who were skilled in philosophy and medicine and natural sciences. And as a matter of course, they would have had myrrh with them in case they encountered injury or death on their journey. After all, their journey was a dangerous one and a long one. It was about a thousand miles they were going to travel. Now, most of us imagine the Magi coming into Jerusalem on the back of their camels, three lonely men in the dark of the night, their way lit by a shining star. But the thing is, it's more likely that the Magi would have swept into Jerusalem as part of a large caravan, a large procession with pomp and circumstance and covered with the dust of a thousand miles. Why do I say that? Well, in those days, the only way you could travel distances into foreign lands and across deserts was in the safety of numbers. Also, they must have been recognized as men of importance because they appear to have no trouble gaining an audience with Herod. And would three travelers coming from another land, coming in the dead of night, have warranted an audience with the king? The Magi who travelled to Jerusalem and later to Bethlehem would have been seen for who they were, advisors to foreign rulers, potential friends, but also potential enemies. But we can also see them as men who sought the truth, who sought answers about a new king. And it's interesting that the one title used about Jesus in this story in Matthew's gospel, is that of King of the Jews. And this title used about Jesus here at the beginning of his life is also used at the end of his life. Matthew, in the telling of the story of the Magi, records it as follows. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who is born King of the Jews? And of course, Jesus' life ended with a declaration that he was king of the Jews. It was on a sign nailed to the cross above him. Luke tells us, there was written a notice above him on the cross which read, king of the Jews. For Herod, and for Pilate too for that matter, this king of the Jews was a threat to their kingdoms, to their way of life, someone to be discredited and gotten rid of. But for the wise men, the king of the Jews was to be acknowledged and to be worshipped. And when they came to Bethlehem, there were no miracle healings, no deep teachings, no great wisdom, just a child and his mother. And yet they still fell down And they worshipped him. And the reaction of the Magi, their reaction in response to their worship of this child, this king of the Jews, was a desire to lay at his feet the noblest gifts that they had. Perhaps because they recognised in the child before them something extraordinary. Perhaps it became a turning point for them. They had, become, they had come face to face with the Messiah, the one who would be the light in the dark world. And perhaps they realized that their ways, the old ways were over, that a new day had dawned because a new light shone. 
Perhaps that was their moment of epiphany. And they realized that their power and their wealth and their position were nothing compared to what they saw in this child. And their lives would only be fully complete when they handed over to him all the things that until that moment they held to be of worth. The things that defined them. The things they thought made them people of worth and of importance. And perhaps as this new church year dawns, we too should set aside all the things to do with the old age, all the things that we hold to be important and of worth and focus upon and worship the one born to be the light of the world. Perhaps in doing so, we too will find this to be a turning point in our lives. We might not feel that we have anything to give the Christ child. But perhaps if we just give Jesus our hearts, we give the greatest gift of all.
Sorensen is Church of Scotland Minister in Greenock. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his short God spots, and today he gives us some investment advice. Here is the Alan Sorensen business update and investment advice. Whoa, the regulators are listening in to see if I can be arrested for this. Well, come on, every news programme on the telly now seems to have business updates and the like. So here's my investment advice. It's dead simple. All friendships, all marriages and romances have one thing in common. They are all investments that pay you dividends if you pay interest. Corny, I know, but it's true. Excessive blessings to you. Toodaloo the new. Jeremy Irons has recorded the Psalms from the authorised version of the Bible. Today we hear Jeremy reading Psalm 133. It's followed by the King's Singers with Billy Joel's song, And So It Goes. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life for evermore.
Powery spoke at Pitlochry Baptist Church about three women mentioned in Matthew's account of the genealogy of Jesus. Today we hear about Bathsheba. And so to Bathsheba. Even the name conjures up an alluring gorgeous temptress, the adulteress luring in the weak-willed king, maybe played by a young Elizabeth Taylor with Richard Burton as King David. But this story is more than a risky Hollywood epic. David, the shepherd boy, the giant killer, poet, musician, soldier, and now king of Israel, the most powerful man in the land. His armies are all fighting, and normally, whatever his armies were, there you'd find the king, but not so here. David is at home in Jerusalem having a wee snooze in the afternoon. What has happened to the man after God's own heart? David was human. All his life, David messed up. Over and over. One day, after his siesta, he spots a beautiful woman in another house bathing, and he sends his servants to find out who she is. He's told she's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his most loyal officers. In other words, totally and utterly out of bounds. Not only is Bathsheba married, she's married to one of David's men. Not only is he one of David's men, he's off risking his life fighting for David's cause while David lounges about his palace. Not only is he fighting for David, but he's left his wife behind, trusting that she'll be safe and protected, what with the king in residence right next door. What David does next is a complete violation of trust. He sends for Bathsheba and sleeps with her. Does Bathsheba have a choice in this? We don't know. 
There's nothing in the story that says she was carried to the palace against her will, but in the times they lived, would it just be taken as, as read that any woman summoned by the monarch had to obey? Either way, a wrong is done. She discovers a few weeks later that she's pregnant. Her husband's been away at war, so everyone will know that she slept with another man. As a woman in those times, her fate looks bleak. Willingly or otherwise, the law was clear. So what does she do? She sends a message to King David, and then the mess just gets worse and worse. David tries to cover his adultery, but eventually resorts to putting Uriah in a position in battle that means certain death. It works. Now here's Bathsheba, another widow, but this widow is pregnant and the baby isn't her husband's. The Bible tells us that when she heard her husband was dead, she mourned for him. I'll bet she did. Can it get any worse? Alone now and on the verge of public disgrace. David sends for her and makes her his wife. Their son is born, but within days gets ill and dies. Bathsheba's life is now just grief heaped upon grief. But David comes to her and comforts her. David, the man who caused this whole sordid mess, the king who has abused his position, the man who didn't act towards her out of love, only lust, the man with other wives and the power to take more, this man comes to her and comforts her. Let's pause here. God could have left Bathsheba there in her sorrow and shame, condemned for eternity as an unfaithful, sinful woman, unhappy till the end. But instead, in that moment, as those two people lay together, grieving for their lost baby son, in that tension between sorrow and redemption, God's grace shone through. Like David, Bathsheba chose in that moment to accept God's will. And she couldn't know where it would lead. But the next son she bore would become David's successor, Solomon. And she would become David's most favoured wife, wise, loyal, and faithful. In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes, God makes all things work together for the good of those who love him. And just because most of the people who've ever loved him are flawed and foolish is no hindrance to God. The genealogy of Jesus reads in places like a history of dysfunctional families. But like God's grace itself, it's paradoxical that this long line of sinners should lead to the one whom God sent to save sinners. That this catalogue of shame, murder, betrayal, adultery, misery and grief should be the lead up to God's greatest gift of love. These three women, Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba, all fallible, all weak, all burdened with more than enough of life's troubles, are joined forever in God's plan for salvation for the world. Outwardly so different from each other and yet each heart wounded and then healed. And it can only be this way through God's divine grace. Grace that's described in the Old Testament in these stories and defined in the New Testament through the birth, 
life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that grace is enough. We can all be part of it. In our brokenness, we can all be recipients of his grace, even as the tears blind us, even as we realize our own plans have fallen to pieces. There's God waiting to change our world. Emmanuel, God with us. And God is with us, always. He's there in the silence before the heavens open and the rains come. He's there in the pause before we stumble towards him in the dark. And he's there in the breath before that first cry of life in a cold, dank stable 2,000 years ago.
of men.